You can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Wonderful to sing together, isn't it? Some great songs uh, this morning. We are at the end of our sermon series today, God's Church, God's Way. Next week, we'll be starting a look at uh, the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6. So I'd encourage you to go ahead and start reading that, perhaps meet up with a brother or sister in Christ and begin praying through that passage together. We'll spend several weeks there. Today's an important day in the life of Church on Mill. Four months ago, the team you created to develop revisions to our bylaws brought forth a proposal. And as a church family, we've spent these months studying, praying, talking, visiting, all working towards uh, tonight when we will gather as a church family at 6 p.m., to prayerfully raise our hands for or against this proposal. And regardless of the outcome of that vote tonight, uh, I want to just take a moment to tell you that I I love you. I'm thankful to be your pastor. I hope you don't get rid of me tonight. And in all seriousness, I'm uh, really, really proud of you, church, and how you've handled uh, this process. Many of you have taken it seriously, and you've considered the issues carefully and thoughtfully. Where there's been divergent views, they've been expressed in in loving, kind, generous ways. And God has been honored and our unity has been preserved. We've long stated as a church that we want to be a people who, who sit under the word of God, letting the scriptures guide us as we live our lives together. Our ambition is to be a church family that's Bible-believing and gospel-centered. So we yearn to be people among which God is heard and obeyed and enjoyed. And if we, if we choose as a church family tonight to adopt these revisions, we'll be taking a big step forward in our obedience to the scriptures. And we'll be building on the foundation that has been laid for decades here long before most of us were sitting in this room of faithfulness towards God. So by way of reminder, real quickly, here's the proposal in a nutshell. Under the good authority of Jesus, who is our our chief shepherd or our senior pastor, the bylaws contain these three revisions. They'll be on the screens. Number one, uh, meaningful membership. God says his church is to be made up of members who enjoy responsibility for each other. Number two, elder leadership. God cares for, teaches, and protects the local church through a plurality of qualified and called men who share these pastoral responsibilities. And then third, deacon served. God frees the elders to concentrate on spiritual oversight and provides for the physical care, administrative needs, and day-to-day functioning of the church through qualified and called men and women. So that's the, the nuts and bolts of the changes that we're laying forth. And there's an ant crawling right here. That is awesome. Um, today we want to take a few moments together, though, and, and step back and look at the big picture. What's, what's all this for? Uh, perhaps you have been annoyed with all this talk of bylaws and governance. Maybe it's been frustrating to you. After all, we are real people with real needs, and real questions, aren't we? And the questions you're asking likely have nothing to do with bylaws, at least in the way we tend to think of them. 
We tend to be asking questions like, should I go to my friend's wedding even though she's in a lesbian relationship? How do I handle disappointments with being single in a way that honors God? How in the world do I know what God's will is? I'm in physical pain every day. How could a good God allow this ongoing suffering? Why should I take the Bible seriously? It's just a story written by men. How can I stop looking at porn this time? Not only do you have these kinds of questions, but we're a church community plopped down in an area where the majority of people desperately need Christ and have rejected him. Tens of thousands of people live and work and study within walking distance of this room. Who cares about bylaws when there's so many people headed for an eternity without God? Can you identify with some of those feelings? If so, then I would say, please know that I sympathize uh, with you. As a teenager and uh, well into my late 20s, the formality of church drove me crazy. I often would gather at the church I was a part of at that time and think, you people on this stage have no clue the way the rest of us actually live. But here I am now, an old man, encouraging the, the thoughtful formation of formal church structure. Why? Well, church governance is undoubtedly important, but let's acknowledge that it rarely feels important. It's not the most pressing issue on our minds and hearts, especially in light of these questions that we have. But getting our church structure more rooted in the Bible directly affects our ability to be faithful to each other and to the community in which God has placed us. Let me see if I can explain that in our remaining time that we have together this morning. Ultimately, why does Church on Mill exist? What are we here for? I'm not obviously talking about the buildings, thankfully. What are, What are we here for? The people. Well, friends, we are a visible expression of what God is doing all over the world. God is building his kingdom by saving individuals from sin and gathering them into churches so that we as people would proclaim the excellencies of God. That's what this passage tells us from 1 Peter 2. Let me read it to you, just two verses. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, that's why the church exists. We exist to proclaim that there's a wonderful God who's rescuing people out of terrible darkness and through Jesus Christ is calling us into the light. So that means we don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. There's nothing about us that could be revealed, Christians, that hasn't already been forgiven by Christ. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you actually lived that way in everyday life? Can you imagine what a group of people 
actually believing and living in light of that fact every day could do for Tempe? In all of our guilt and pride and shame and disgrace, God has reconciled us first to himself and then to each other. So Church on Mill is here to declare what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're here for the single mom who thinks there is no hope and that no one cares. We're here for the child confused by the cruelty of classmates. We're here for the visiting scholar from Asia that's just curious about Jesus. We're here for the couple whose marriage has been ravaged by bitterness and unforgiveness. We're here for the college student who thinks a degree and a girlfriend will resolve the pain of loneliness and meaninglessness. We're here for the senior adult who feels the best part of life is long past. In all of these situations, there is a God who rescues people from darkness simply because he's a God of love and then gathers them into a new humanity called the church for his glory. That's why we're here. Amen? Getting our church structure into a more biblical pattern will protect and sustain this God-given mission that we've been given. And it will help us to share the gospel with Christian and non-Christian alike. Elders who focus on equipping through godly teaching and modeling will help to multiply this ministry. Deacons who care for the practical and administrative needs of the family will make sure that we're not saying one thing and then not following it up with living a sacrificial life together. And members who care for and help each other reach the people of Christ here and around us as a worshiping community will cause our evangelistic impact to spread. So why are we here? Well, Church on Mill exists to declare the excellencies of God. Now, unless you're sitting in a church gathering for the very first time, that's likely not news to you. But how exactly are we to live that out? How do we roll as a church family, if you will? Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5 for one example of how the scriptures tell us to live this out. If you don't have a Bible in the chair in front of you, there should be one, and we're on page 667 in those chair Bibles. Feel free to take that if you don't have a Bible of your own. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't hear many pages turned. Are you sleeping already? Please turn with me there. There's, uh, I'm a little old-fashioned in this regard. There's something about holding a book in your hands and actually looking at the words. 2 Corinthians 5, and I'll start in verse 16. And we want to take one of the metaphors that Paul uses to help us see how we live this vision out of being a church, of being Christians. So verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He's simply saying, we used to think of Jesus as simply another man. We didn't think of the fact that he's God in the flesh, 
always been, always will be. And now we think of him in that way. That's what he's referencing. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Friends, Christians are God's people given God's message. The message we as a church long to share with everyone is the message of the gospel. And in just a few sentences, here's that message. There is a great God who we've all rejected universally. All people everywhere have chosen to put God and the things of God aside in place of ourselves. And that's broken humanity's relationship with God. But Jesus, eternal God made flesh, died on the cross, punished for our sin. He took our punishment in our place. He died so that we could come to know God as our Savior. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose in victory over sin, death, and the devil. And now he's reigning as Lord and Savior. And the scriptures tell us if we accept his sacrifice on our behalf, then that enmity between me and God, between you and God, can be bridged, can be healed. People can become right with God again. And then we can enjoy the experience of joining God's family, sharing the gospel with others. That's the basic gospel. The message not of what we can or should do for God, but what God has already done for us. I'd like to dwell there with you for a moment. The the message, again, of what God has done and is doing. This passage tells us that God entrusts us with the message of reconciliation. Verse 19. Christians sharing the gospel with people who don't yet believe, is not taking the posture of a slimy used car salesman. We're not trying to sell someone a piece of junk so that we can make a few dollars. Our, our aim isn't to manipulate people into thinking they need something that's going to turn out to be not near as great as what we're articulating it is. Sharing the gospel is sharing the best news someone will ever hear. And the aim isn't manipulation, is love. It's loving to tell people that there is a God and that he's a God of love and grace and truth. And that if we continue to reject him, we'll spend eternity without him. But through Christ, there's a way to know God again. Human beings were created to live in relationship with God. 
and to in the stuff of everyday life through living in the way that God has created us to show God's creativity and his power and his love. We were made for deep community with each other, relationships so rich and full that they echo back to the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. But sin always gets in the way of those joys. We are unable to live that way apart from the gospel. And so Paul's telling us here in 2 Corinthians that the message of reconciliation is the one who made us, the one who told us how to live, the one who was personally offended by our sin is the same one who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin so that we could be reunited with him. And so we share a message of hope, of love, of freedom from condemnation. What a privilege it is for us to gather in this room week after week after week and be reminded that this is the truth, the most important thing we could ever hear. And then to be sent out as Christians to share that gospel message throughout the week. That's the message that God has entrusted to us. A message of reconciliation. That's what God is doing. Now notice also in verse 20 that Paul says God makes his appeal through us as what? Not a trick question. As ambassadors. Now, what's an ambassador? An ambassador is a representative. It's a person who has left, usually left their home country, gone to another, and now as an individual stands with the full authority to represent that country in another. So do you, get, do you get the picture? Christians are ambassadors of Christ. We're representatives of heaven. Our citizenship is with God, and yet God has placed us here to represent him to a world in desperate need. An ambassador is an authorized representative. So friend, if you're a Christian, you represent Christ. And together, we represent Christ. I wonder, do you see yourself like that? Do you recognize when you speak every single time you speak as a representative of Christ? So we either represent him well or we act in a way completely inconsistent with him and fail to represent him well. This is one of the reasons why meaningful membership in a Bible-believing, gospel-centered church is so important. You and I have a remarkable capacity for self-deception. And we need relationships with other brothers and sisters who can help keep us on the path following Christ. People who say they're Christians are people claiming to speak on behalf of Jesus. Wow! That's an enormous responsibility. Membership helps the members of the church say, yes, we hear your confession of faith 
in the gospel. And we recognize that that's what the Bible says the gospel is. We hear it. And yes, we see your life changing. There's evidence of salvation. We see you as someone with belief in the gospel, not just simply the words, but the Spirit is evidenced in your life through fruit, through your life beginning to look more and more and more Christ-like. Not because you're trying harder, but because you're giving up and allowing Christ to live his life through you. As members will gladly help oversee your spiritual growth and challenge each other to be faithful ambassadors for Christ. We lovingly call each other to repent of our sin. We pray for each other, rejoice when things go well, stand together when things go wrong, representing Christ together. Brothers and sisters, only the church is given that responsibility. There is no other group of people on the planet that Christ has authorized in that way. These kinds of churches spreading all over the globe, or the globe, are God's plan to change the world. So let's put these pieces together. There, there is a message so powerful, it can transform your life today and your eternity forever. That message is simply the power of the gospel. It's a word more powerful than anything good or bad you've ever done. It's a message more powerful than anything ever done to you because it's the very power of God. And when you and I speak as Christians, we are speaking as representatives of the one who died and rose again. He's alive today. And he's doing his work through us. Elders, deacons, and membership are ultimately about that. About living faithfully to that call. Now let's make this practical. I'd like to spend our remaining time talking about two ways, practically speaking, that we can be ambassadors as a church family. Number one is that we can be ambassadors by learning to live every day as missionaries for Christ. Ambassador is likely not a word you use very often, but missionary is a word we're more familiar with, many of us. Missionaries are people who live among the people that they want to reach for Christ. They don't function from a distance at a stance of a superiority above other people, but rather they function alongside them, among them. Missionaries are learners of the people in the culture they're seeking to reach. Missionaries are people who humbly come to understand the culture well. The work of an ambassador is never done from, from a distance. So the, the ambassador, for example, to Germany, doesn't live in the United States. Where does he or she live? Not a trick question. They're not here. They live among the people through which they're to live as an ambassador. So what does that mean for us? Well, most people you meet today in Tempe, Arizona, will tell you they don't believe in absolute truth. 
if we get in conversations with them about the nature of how we know things and how we can be sure of something, especially when it comes to spiritual truths, people will reject the idea that there is truth. They'll say everything is relative. Nothing transcends all people, all cultures. Now, on the surface, frankly, that sounds hip and sexy. It sounds like a tolerant, loving, kind way to live. A society in which everyone thinks whatever they want, and that's truth for them, has a veneer of nicety, doesn't it? That's the dominant worldview all around us. Unless you're here temporarily from some other part of the world, you have been um, deeply impacted by that worldview. It's not just something out there. It's something that apart from God's consistent work in us, we find ourselves slipping back into, thinking that we have the capacity to judge spiritual truth ourselves. But that perspective arises from a worldview that's deeply, deeply flawed. It's a lie. To say that there are no absolute truths is to make a statement of absolute truth. It, it doesn't even get off the starting block. And yet it's everywhere. So church, a church of missionaries takes the humble position of understanding culture and trying to relate to individuals in winsome, loving, godly ways. We follow Jesus together, letting him guide us so that we become a picture together of a different kind of life. We live as friends of sinners building relationships together over the long haul so that we can meaningfully share the gospel with others. For many of us, what I'm talking about isn't so much about filling your calendar with stuff you're not doing already, but it's about learning to do the stuff of everyday life with gospel intentionality. It's about going into the the stuff of everyday life, remembering in every single moment we're representing Christ. This is what our gospel communities are all about. It's why we're doing evangelistic Bible study in Barrett on the ASU campus. It's why we fling open these doors every Sunday morning, inviting anyone and everyone to join us. But more than those formal, organized ministries, it's the stuff of everyday life done with gospel intentionality. Work, grocery store, school, meals, apartment neighbors, gym, the park, the places we go every day. Living every day representing Jesus well in all that we do. Those of you who are, are Christians, I would ask you, what I've been convicted to ask myself this week. If someone looked at your lifestyle over the past seven days, would they say that person represented Christ well? Or are you merely living as a representative of yourself? Friends, the gospel affects everything 
It affects how we drive our cars. It affects what we do when somebody bumps into us with their shopping cart. It affects how we respond to unwanted text messages. It affects whether or not we wave to a neighbor and try to pursue them. It affects what we say when we sit in a car, Ubering. It affects everything. And we need each other as brothers and sisters to remember and to keep that bar high because you simply don't know what God's doing in another person's life and how a few chosen words can change somebody's eternity. It's so easy to fall into a pattern of selfish laziness where we forget the joy of living as ambassadors and instead simply live like everybody else. Now, if I could push that a little bit further. So your temptation might be to do like this in a moment. Blah, blah, blah. But perhaps a few will entertain this idea. Can you imagine what would happen in a square mile around our church property if 15 or 20% of us chose to move in. Not to this building, of course. That's a bad idea. But to live close. Because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who gather on that campus, who live right around us, transient people who are just passing through where there is very, very little opportunity to hear the biblical gospel and see people living faithfully for Christ. Those of you who already live in that vicinity, what if you thought of yourself as a missionary plopped down in the middle of a foreign culture specifically placed there to do everyday life with gospel intentionality. Can you imagine what would happen? This part of Tempe has become an urban center bustling with opportunities to live missionally. And those who went long before us to purchase this property and sacrificed financially some of whom are still here, did so in order that generations later people would choose to stay, to make sacrifices, to have smaller homes, condos, apartments, paying more money to live in an urban center in order to live as a gospel witness, as gospel people. Number two. Another way we can live missionaries is to demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel through biblical community. Friends, biblical community is church-saturated. It's making a formal commitment in membership and then renewing it every day in the way that we live. It's giving and serving and studying the Bible and praying. It's forgiving each other. 
And when we disagree, we don't run. We pursue each other and seek reconciliation because God has reconciled us to him. It's helping each other in laboring in love, not because we're all the same, but because we share the same experience of being rescued by God. Because Jesus first loved us, we can love each other. It's living life on life together on mission, not because that's easy or convenient or without cost, not because it avoids awkward conversations, not because it's easy for us to get along, not because we have sameness, but because we share being loved by God. Therefore, we can love each other. And the weirder, the more dislike each other we are, the better the gospel shines forth. Friends, in a culture like ours, many people will need to see the effects of the gospel between our relationships before they'll ever listen to us share the biblical gospel. People are skeptical, and rightly so. Francis Schaeffer put it this way. One cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. In the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. Friends, you can't see words. I went to school a long time to learn that. You can't see words. The gospel is a word. It's a word to be shared. But for many people, they've, they think they've heard and heard and heard. And so what they need to see is a quality of relationship, a, a sacrifice, love, different than they're going to see anywhere else in order that then we can share the word. Francis went on to say this, By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and its reality of community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. One enormously powerful effect of the gospel is that it creates a contrast community. A community that's different. Not because you're better or smarter or you've obeyed more of the rules, but because God chose you and called you and you responded in faith. That's the heart of church membership, the commitment to each other that invites more and more and more and more and more people to join in. Our relationship as a church family is designed by Jesus to be powerful proof of the truthfulness of Jesus and his message. So how do we live as ambassadors? We, we live as ambassadors by, by learning to think like missionaries because that's what we are. And we learn to do so together, not apart. One church historian put it this way, and his point is it's always been this way. 
This quote will be on the screen. It was the incendiary character of the early Christian fellowship, which was amazing to the contemporary Romans. And it was amazing because there was nothing in their experience that was remotely similar to it. Much of the uniqueness of Christianity in its original emergence, so if you don't have any idea what he's talking about, block out an hour this week and read the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts is the story of the church busting out into the world. And in a couple hundred years, there went from no Christians to Christianity being the most common belief in the Roman Empire. So that's what he's referring to. The uniqueness of Christianity in its original emergence consisted of the simple people, consisted of the fact that simple people could be amazingly powerful when they were members of one another. Church on Mill, this is what church is. God's people glorifying God as he changes continually our lives. And us being humble enough to live lives of, of brokenness that God is putting back together and doing so together so that there's not simply words we're sharing but a reality being lived out before people. That's what the bylaws, believe it or not, are for. To keep us on that track together. Having a team of spiritually-minded, qualified elders, growing a larger team of servant-oriented deacons, and increasing our commitment to each other in membership, these are the tools that God has given us. All of us know, well, most of us know, if, you, if you've got a screw that needs to be screwed in, you need a screwdriver, not a hammer. We ought to use the right tool to do the right job. The job God has given us is to be his ambassadors. And the tools he's given us are godly men and women as deacons, godly elders, and members of one another. Biblical governance guards and enables our God-given mission. So let's pray to that end. And I hope you'll come back tonight at 6 p.m. We'll gather right here. And we're going to do a bunch of things, including food. But we're going to hear stories of ways God's at work. We're going to talk about mission trips coming up, people going around the world. We're going to pray. And then we're going to vote together. And by God's grace... May he guide us and lead us with one voice to be his church. Now, if you're one of the folks who Jill gave some books to, would you stand up? Don't be bashful. Kent. Whoa, you almost fell. That would have been awesome. Uh, All right. Uh, A lot of us need more help in learning how to do this well. So we've got 12 books because, of course, there was 12 disciples with uh, this book that's called Evangelism. It is about how the church represents Jesus with the gospel message. If you're in one of these sections and you'll take it and read it and you'll do something with it, would you stick up your hand 
and one of these folks will bring you one of those books. So stick your hand up. We'll share one of these. I want to encourage you to take it, read it, gather with another brother or sister in Christ, and then seek to put it to practice. There's always a need for us to be humble learners as we live this out. Now, I have a really awesome, amazing thing to, uh, to tell you. By God's grace, today, um, things like this, I don't, I don't know if you're tempted to think, gosh, those people are, they're just crafting all these little strings and pulling them behind the scenes, making things happen so that the message looks really cool. But I'm not that smart, and neither is anybody else. This week, as we were doing a membership interview with Shane Wolf, who's been pursuing the process of membership, we learned that Shane desired to be baptized, has never been baptized. And so he's here today to share his story with you. And one of, and one of his gospel community leaders, Matt Ward, is going to be doing the dunking. Now, if you're not sure what baptism is, let me take just a moment to tell you. Baptism is kind of a bizarre thing. Uh, Shane is going to read his testimony, his story of how God has been at work in his life, and then Matt's going to dunk him under the water. What is that for? Well, baptism, it's just water, just like at your house. There's nothing special or magical about it. But as Shane goes under the water, it is a visible picture, a sign of his death in Christ. And as he comes up out of the water, it's a visible picture of Christ rising from the dead and Shane rising to live a whole new life by God's grace. And so what seems kind of weird, like this, you know, public taking of a bath, is a graphic picture of God's love in his care. So would you join me in hearing Shane's story? 